Hello, I'm Matt, and this is Ghostthropology. Ghostthropology presents discussion of ghost stories and beliefs, and how we share ghost folklore, and importantly, how belief in the supernatural reflects who we are. While I don't know when or where or how you are listening, I hope it's dark outside, as that is the best time for ghost stories. Episode 44, Talking About Exorcisms with James Tyner. Once again, we're lucky enough to have with us James Tyner, who has been working for the last many years in the libraries of Fresno County, but is quite possibly one of the, has one of the more interesting backgrounds of all the people I've met. James, if you'd be willing, could you please tell the audience about what your background was relative to the stories that you wanted to talk about today? Yeah, absolutely. And first off, just thank you for having me back. It's always uh, such a a uh, pleasure to be here and just talk about all these awesome things. And I think we have a similar, uh, some similarities in our views. And so, it, yeah, it's just great fun picking these apart. But um, a little bit about me uh, from the year 1993 to about 1996, I was actually a, a monk. I was a Catholic monk. Uh, it's kind of a long story because I wasn't the most religious at that time. Um, but I did serve for the Augustinian Recollects, which is a order of monks and priests. They're from the original Augustinians. Uh, Augustinians were generally more contemplative, but the Augustinian Recollects, which is the order I was in, they tried to combine the contemplative life, so the prayer and the meditation with works. So they would do a, um, a lot of missionary type stuff. They would do, also do a lot of working with the poor. So how did I get in there? Just real quick, out of high school, I came from a very poor family and um, my parents wanted me to go to school, but neither of them had been themselves. I had no clue about what to do after high school. So during the summer, I'd done some journeys. And when I got back, a cousin of mine called me up and said, hey, I know of a place you can go to. Uh, um, it's in Oxnard, California. It's a school. Like I can get you in. It'll be totally free. And so I thought, okay, let's go on an adventure. And I went and he literally dropped me off at a monastery. <laughs> I had no clue. Um, they were just as surprised as I were. I guess some of the backstory was is that his girlfriend at the time, her mom was working with the monks to get them in the local city college or the up and coming ones, that the, the students. So um, she had been working with getting them in and they had just opened up this new monastery in Oxnard. And so um, they were looking for recruits for young, young people. And he thought, my cousin thought this would be a great opportunity for me and for them. And I have no clue. And I got dropped off. Granted, it was almost all Spanish speaking and I didn't speak Spanish at that time. I do now. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a bit of a, a shock. And I was a very, not I wouldn't say wild kid, but I was a very adventurous and I love to explore and go and to suddenly have, you know, all these rules and restrictions was uh, a lot. And I'm sure it was hard on them too, but it was a good life. I love helping people, working with people. Um, I got to experience everything. I lived in Oxnard, New York, and then I trained for what they call my novitiate year, which we'll talk about a little bit, was in Spain. I lived in a town called Monteudo, a tiny little town on the border of uh, Pamplona and Aragon, or I'm sorry, Navarra and Aragon, near the north. And it was, uh, yeah, it was a great life, just very simple. We did a lot of our own growing vegetables and our food, working with local farmers and things like that. And it was just a um, great time of life and really formed me uh but i ended up doing about four years of her right you know it's funny when we think about monks we think about a lot of the privation and uh one thing that you kind of touched on there but i've found myself especially as i get older thinking about is there's also a certain amount of for lack of a better way of putting it kind of mental freedom in knowing that you're going to have a routine and knowing that 
you can't allow certain outside things to intrude on your life. Yeah. So it was a big change for me. And one of the things, there was a lot of spiritual stuff, obviously. So I started to read as I got more involved and I was reading about meditation. I was I was reading all time, types of religious texts, which I had never done before. But there was something about the routine. Uh, you're up in the morning, uh, you're praying and then you're eating and then you're studying, you're going to school. And then in that afternoons, there was even physical exercise that they kind of would involve in. And then also helping people, just getting out there. I was delivering food a lot. I would do things like I'd take a football with me. So I'd go to these poor people and helping them, giving them the food. And then the kids would be excited and we'd play a little bit of football and just things like that. And uh, But yeah, there, there is about that routine. You're able to find yourself in those small moments. Yeah, it sort of like separates you from the world. But at the same time, you're just so hyper-focused on things. And yeah, because I would always wonder that that contemplative life, how are you helping in the bigger picture? But there is that sense of community. And the Augustinians themselves really pushed like brotherhood and coming together and how you work as a unit and those kind of things. So yeah, but there really was something in that day to day for sure. You know, it's funny the the way that you describe it in some ways reminds me of my father talking about when he first joined the army. Obviously, he wasn't going out and, you know, bringing meals and playing football with kids. But, you know, there was yeah. also very similar. You have this routine, you have a sense of comradeship, and you have a particular mission that you have to carry out. And it gave them a sense of clarity. It's interesting that you make that make that uh, connection because my family is, uh, long story short, I was the only one out of several generations and uncles that didn't go to the military. Even my brother, my stepdad, my dad, my uncles, everybody but me. And it was because I landed in this situation. Otherwise, I probably would have as well. But yeah, there are some similarities. I mean, I would never say that it's exactly like it, but the, there are absolute similarities. And, and even the, the length of time and the different training and the way it came out was, yeah, it, it I, I kind of look at it in a sense of sort of, yeah, a, a very similar. And it, it's changed a lot of who I am. I think it's definitely sent me in those directions and what I do today in my daily job still. I pull on those moments, not just seeing it as library work. It's more like working for people in that bigger picture and making connections and still trying to help in, in the ways that I can. So when you suggested coming back on, you told me that you wanted to speak about an exorcism that you had witnessed. Could you set the scene for that and let us know a bit about what led up to this? It was either late 93 or early 94. And um, the order I was in, one of the things they would do is they wanted to recruit new students because they had this new, brand new building. It's in Oxnard. It's a gorgeous building. I don't think they have students for it anymore. So I think it's now for more retired but at that time, they were recruiting, so they would go to these big conventions. The Shriners Auditorium, this was all Oxnard, LA, and so they would go to these used conventions, set up tables, like, kind of like at a con, and then try and attract people uh, to the order. And so we would go along and do that, and it was, so it was this huge Catholic events and just a ton of people and trying to find you know new, new young men that would be interested. So this was one of my first ones going, and this one, I can't remember exactly where it was. I want to say it was Shriners, but I could be wrong, but it was a huge, a pretty big stadium, a pretty big event, and it was filled. And these would go on for two, two three days. And we'd go out there and we'd talk to people, trying to recruit their prayers and plays and all kinds of stuff. It was a lot for me because it was sort of new to this. It was overwhelming and it was a lot. So at one point, there's something that they called Holy Hour. And basically, all the stadium lights would go down and just like one or two little beams of light would be on. And priest would do a prayer. He'd do like a mass during it. And he'd put the the, the body of Christ, the Eucharist in this. And it looked almost like a sunburst or like a, a mace. So he's carrying this thing and he's walking through the aisles and there's music going, very soft music. And he's praying. And as this is going on, I'm sitting there, we're near the front with my other monks. It got us, you know, a place at the front. And as he's going through, this priest is going, everything's in Spanish. He's going down the aisles and start to hear screaming. And I thought, okay, that's, that's kind of weird. And dotted through the whole stadium, there would be these noises. And it started off as a couple screams. And then it would go to barks and animals noises and it was like this is very odd so i'm hearing this spark all around the, the, the stadium and i started to notice as he would the priest would get to certain people they would 
do whatever they'd shake and he would say a prayer over them and it'd stop and at first i'm a little scared it's like what the heck is going on like this is a horror movie come true but then as i'm seeing it's like oh it almost felt this could sound very disrespectful of me but it sounded like theater in some ways people were reacting to the priest and then he was saying whatever and then they would calm down it was almost a way of sort of like confession in a way like getting this off their whatever this was off their shoulders or off their chest he's going down and he's doing this and these people are screams and and, and it's all these awful noises that sound like they're coming all from behind me and as he gets towards where we're sitting the lady uh she was about two seats from me hispanically i put her like in her mid-50s maybe four nine four ten very short lady she does the same thing she stands up and she puts her head back and she starts screaming at the top of her lungs and i'm looking like what is going on and then her face starts to change. That's one of the things that got me. She went what looked to me very pale. So um, some of the people next to her started to kind of like grab onto her to kind of like calm her down because she was shaking violently and she was screaming and yelling. And so um, as she's doing this, I can see what looks like tears of blood start to go slowly down her eyes. And she grabs one guy and with one arm, she throw, throws him. And he kind of slides into some chairs and then another one jumps on her and she pushes another one back with one arm. And finally, like uh, four or five guys kind of wrap her down and then the priest comes up and he was, he went into action mode. I just remember him kind of leaping up and putting a knee on her her chest and he's putting this on her and she's hissing and, and screaming and she looks at me at one point and she says my name. And this was kind of freaky. I'm just a young guy here and she says my name. And he's got his, like I said, his knee on her chest. He's doing the prayers. And at that point I was like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is enough for me. And her voice would like go to different, it almost sounded like different people. And then like, again, with the animal noises and then every huddle, everybody huddled around her and the priest is praying. And I went, to the bathroom and go get a drink of water. So that was uh, that was kind of where that separated. And I could stop there, but I will say that over the three more years that I was, or two more years that I was in that part than in, in Oxnard, I probably saw a similar event. Nothing quite as dramatic as that, but I probably saw at least three more. Uh, yeah, things like that, similar to that. So yeah, there's a, a lot to, to pick apart, but that's kind of the story. A lady next to me had, I believe, was possessed and then everybody jumped on her and then that was it. But just as a young person, I think I was all of 18 years old seeing this horrific event and kind of scary. But as I've grown older, I've kind of looked at it and tried to, you know, to examine it and see what was what. What do you make of it now, you know, looking back on it almost 30 years later? That's a great question. I mean, I said in the moment I was frightened, completely frightened, and this was like horror movie stuff. But over the years, like I, everything I've looked up about it, even from the blood in her eyes to the changing of her face, those are all psychological, physiological conditions that can happen under stress mm -hmm. and duress. So all of that makes sense. The one that a lot of people ask me, well, then how did she know your name? How did she know to look at you and say your name? And the one thing that I've come to mind, I'm six foot four. Everybody around me was not. I was a very different skin color and complexion. I didn't speak Spanish. I was pretty sure I was the only James in the building. And I'm assuming that my brothers with me probably said my name and her being a seat or two from me probably heard it. That's my guess. That's how I pick it apart. Because yeah, so it just makes sense to me. And I think, but in the moment, not knowing those things, just being able to look back, like I said, 30 years later, that's what I believe it was. And I didn't see what happened to her at the end, but I can tell you with some of the other ones that I saw that day. And then later on, there was also a big sense of, of release and relief for these people afterwards. So I think that also plays a part. Because I was wondering, if you're possessed by the devil or a monster or a demon or however you want to look at it, do you think it's going to let you go to these events? <laughs> So that's the thing that always confused me, but just to see how it changed them, that process. So I think it's something deeper. Uh, it, it gives people a moment of power and it lets you know them be the focus of attention. And then it's almost a metaphor, I feel like, in some ways for getting over something traumatic, experiencing that with others around you in, in a safe setting. So yeah, that's some of the ways I look at it now. So a few things you said really struck me here because anthropologist Matt immediately thought, well, that sounds familiar. Uh, the first is you made the comment that it seemed like theater. And this 
is something that you see a lot in anthropological literature is stories of possession, which can mean, you know, you've been possessed by a malignant entity, but depending on which culture you're talking about, it could also mean you're a medium, you've invited a possession because somehow that's going to serve you or allow you to serve some higher power. And very often they have theatrical elements. There's usually a pace to them, a kind of cycle where the person is possessed, their body goes through whatever it is while the entity, be it a spirit or a god or what have you, is in you know control. The person who's going through it will often discuss that they had themselves gone to some other place and were experiencing something important. But what happens is always culturally contingent. It's not random, and it's also not the same from one culture to another, although there are often similarities. But then they come back, and when they come back, there is usually some sort of release, either for them or for the community that witnessed it. And it's often compared to theater by anthropologists who work with like shamanic groups, for example. So that was the first thing that struck me is you compared it to theater. And I thought, well, that's a very common way of describing it. Yeah. So one of the things that a lot of them would start with or during the two days that these events would have, and that one in particular did, is there would be an actual play at one point. And you got to realize this was early 90s. So there was still a little bit of the satanic panic feel around. So one of the plays, in fact, I think it was the one from that weekend I distinctly remember was talking about rock and roll music. And it was talking about, you know, drugs and things like that and tarot cards and Ouija boards. It was talking about to do that and in the play one of the girls becomes possessed and they do a similar thing to her in the play and it, it, in some ways um again I, I don't mean to knock anybody and that mm-hmm. was a big movement at that time that they called what the charismatic movement i think it was in the yeah. catholic church and yeah just it, it was almost like setting the stage for that and then you would see it reflected later on during that holy hour so yeah yeah it was definitely setting some standards and expectations but and it also shows the pool of that time with the, with the satanic panic where people's minds you know were with you know, anything that was odd or whatever. Yeah, they didn't mention D&D in those, but I had several like family members talking about burning D&D books and that kind of stuff. But yeah. Yeah, my family did not go in for that, but we knew a lot of people who did. Yeah. There's a, a super goofy story I tell all the time, but my mom, you know, we were mild Catholics to put it nicely, but she had a friend during that time that got to some of those movements and my mom went along for one. And so she was getting into it for a little bit and she only lasted in there about six months or whatever, but D&D was a thing. And I, w- I would collect it, collect the D&D books and I'd be reading. And so I would think I was like a freshman or a junior or whatever in, in high school. And I knew she didn't like them in the house. So I was hiding it and I was laying on the bed, you know, my back towards the wall. And then I had the books on the floor so I could put them under the bed if she came in the room. My mom comes in and she goes, you better not have those darn D&D books on you. And I was like, mom, no, it's it's a playboy and i would have never said that under any other circumstances and she was like oh okay and she walked out because she was so caught off guard by it i mean normally i would have been in major trouble but yeah just showing how people were so caught up in those things it makes me think of the uh simpsons episode where homer crashes a car and he's asked where he was well i was at moe's goes into his head you know don't say it's a bar don't say it's a bar don't say it's a bar i was at a pornography store i was buying <laughs> pornography <laughs> That's exactly it. Yeah, but I have I saw that one that one situation uh, that, that I described the exorcism. I probably mm-hmm. saw others. I would say like three or four others. And one minor tidbit I'll throw in there is when I was in Spain, we didn't really do this. It was so focused on on the the, the religious aspect of that time. You know, lots of silence, times of silence, meditation. But my well, he was called the master of novices. He was kind of the priest in charge of us. He was, I would say, maybe. F- 
35 at that time. And his hair was stark white. He was a Spanish priest. And I guess he had spent a good 10 years in Mexico at that time. And I didn't know this till later, but he was the exorcist for his area. And I guess he had become so tired of that, doing that in Mexico where he was, that he asked for the move back to Spain to get a change of pace because he was so busy. And I guess it was taxing for him. You know, I guess it was pretty emotional. And he said it, it, it yeah, that it had a big effect on him. One of the things that you had also mentioned earlier, and I thought this was interesting, is you said it was like confession, like getting things off their chest. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think about how most cultures have some sort of a release valve. A very common one is the idea of carnival, which still exists, but is not quite the same as what it was, say, during the medieval or renaissance periods where, you know, everything was turned upside down and it kind of yeah. gave people a way to blow off steam for one week so they could go back to the social order the rest of the year. And when you were describing the priest going through and before he got to that woman who uh, they actually pinned down that several people were making noises and so on, you know, it, it certainly does sound like a similar thing. You know, this is an opportunity to let loose whatever it is that's in you in a way that people will contextualize and not hold against you later. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's a great point. It's right on it. And that's, for me, I mean, that's kind of where I've, over the years, as I look at this again, I think of almost, and this, kind of you mentioned Carnival, and I think that's a great correlation. And for us, I almost think of like Halloween, our Americanized Halloween. Mm. It's sort of the gathering of families. You come together and you take on another aspect of whatever it is. There's a little bit of gluttony, you gorge in the food, and then what goes along with that, and then the movement, the candy, and sort of being something else. And those stories that we tell, square stories that kind of bring each other closer and have fun are almost real for a split second, you know, as you travel around the neighborhood and collect candy and see people in costumes. And there's something about that. Also, I, was, I cannot remember the name of me for the life of me, but there was a book on exorcism I wrote, and it was, I cannot remember his name, but he was a, a professor, I forget where, but he just studied exorcism throughout the world, all different types. And he, he did talk about a particular tribe in Africa, I can't remember, where it was the women that would get possessed, but they saw it as a moment for them to have this sort of, almost tying in with feminism, just having that power for a bit, rather than having to do the daily, the daily routines, and the daily chores, and all the things that are expected of us, to be free and to be powerful and to be wild and to dance and scream for this limited period of time. So yeah, and that was kind of his you know, kind of putting a different spin on exorcism where it's, it's almost a, f a freedom and, and, and breaking away from norms and then, then coming back afterwards. So I, I thought that was an interesting take. Sort of a, uh, a, a temporary escape that allows you to essentially be a different entity that can get away with what you normally can't get away with and also doesn't have your responsibilities. Yeah. Because I remember the way he described it, there was dancing and movement and wildness and they had control. They dictated the, the, the conversation. They dictated how things, how this whole kind of performance went. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's sort of that freedom and power Yeah, and breaking up social norms. It's a curious thing because every few years you hear a case of somebody who has died during an exorcism. They're usually Protestant exorcism attempts that happen, although I think there have been a few cases where it's been Catholic. But in many of those cases, the signs of the exorcism weren't necessarily that the person was behaving in a way that any of us would think was particularly abnormal, but it was out of the norms for whatever fairly strict social or religious group they were a member of. And, you know, it's interesting that you do have these people who seem to take on possession as a way of, you know, kind of getting out of some of the uh, social structures, as you say, but also 
it could be a way of essentially asserting that somebody's lack of conformance to social strictures is itself a sign that there's something evil with them, even if, in fact, the person is just doing what normal people do. To put it in, in modern context, I had an interesting situation a few years ago. I, I can't give too, too, too many details because I don't want to give the, the person away. But long story short, I got a call one day. This was probably five, maybe for longer, maybe five, six years ago. I get a call from a supervisor at the time. And somehow they got my name. I have no clue. But they asked me, and there's in all privacy, so that's why I'm not going to mention names. But essentially, they had an employee who wanted sick leave. They wanted to take time off, but sick time to have an exorcism. And so they were asking me, is this legit? Is this a real thing? Will this fall? Like why they would ask me, I'm not sure. But so I had a big conversation with them and, and we did talk it out and we got with the boring, you know, supervisor stuff and point by point. But one of the things that came up was talking about, because it was Catholic and I, I was explaining to this person that if it was, if they deemed it a real exorcism or this person was truly possessed, there's very clear steps that have to be done. And uh, doctors supposed to go in, a psychologist to analyze them and all this stuff. And, and there's multiple approvals that have to go all the way up with the, the local diocese giving the approval on, you know, this the steps going forward with the exorcism stuff. And so I explained this to the supervisor and it was enough for her to do what she had to do, whatever it was, make her decision. This particular guy, it was kind of the same thing that you had mentioned. He, he, he wasn't approved ultimately by the diocese, but he liked going to these kind of these conventions, these charismatic conventions, and they would sell him bracelets and they would sell him a necklace that would help him with his you know, his problem and keep him safe. And they would put their hands on him and he would get that attention. And it was a break from the norms of work life. So he would work all week. And then on the weekends, he would go to these retreats and he'd spend a lot of money. But at the same time, he was getting, I guess, the attention for himself that I think he think he needed. Well, it reminds me of uh, when I lived down in Southern California, there was a group that they claimed to be native Californian, but based on information that we were able to track down, they probably weren't. Hmm. I can't say for certain that they weren't, but I, the impression I got both from information I was able to get on them, but also from talking to, as part of my day job, I was constantly talking to native Californian leaders and uh, representatives. And it seemed like these guys probably weren't, but what they were doing was making a lot of money by having spiritual retreats that they would sell to like entertainment and tech company executives. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to be a place where those people could go. And for a little while, their high powered, high tech job was irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I think there's a little bit of, uh, frankly, I think there's a little bit of racism in there of, ah, you know, the Indian is magical, you know, that sort of thinking. Right. But I think there was also the idea that they could step away from a role of a lot of responsibility, not just in their company, but because of the way that tech companies, you know, sort of been the uh, early 2000s. So they were really becoming big players uh, politically. But tech companies and entertainment companies play a very big role in the world. So it was kind of a way for them to step away from that for a little while. I mean, kind of going on that, that adding that sense of the, the modern. I also wonder, too, you know, looking back over the years, what influence pop culture has. Mm -hmm. Like, we'll state the obvious, the movie The Exorcist. I mean, how much that, like, I don't know, blew up the idea of an exorcist, an exorcist and what they do. And then, you know, that there's monsters and demons all over the place. And I mean, I've heard countless stories of people seeing that movie and thrown up in the audience. And But just still, I mean, how many movies we get now that are still about exorcisms, how much of that ties into the movie The Exorcist itself and how much pop culture has, has kind of influenced those things. Yeah, and sort of made it okay, or at least brought it into our 
you know, communal conscious or however you want to put it. So yeah, I find that part kind of interesting. What what play that that pop culture has on, on this and our views and our look and because looking at those things that I went to, I, in, in retrospect, you can almost see aspects of it. Like you know, that's how they acted in the film. So let me also do this. So yeah, again, I'm not trying to pick on anybody or, or saying anybody's mm-hmm. experience is less than, but yeah, I, I did always find it interesting and just the power of of media. Um, yeah, and kind of how we see and perceive and, and feel these things. Because I mean, I, I had never seen anything like that, but as soon as it's happening around me, I, I knew exactly exactly what it was. Right? You could yeah bite those cues. You know? Yeah. Matthew Baxter, who's actually the husband of a friend of mine, I know him primarily as somebody who is frequently interviewed to talk about paranormal things and as a writer. He's a very good writer. He's written a number of magazine articles. One thing that he's written about is going to, and I forget the name of the guy, but there's a guy who is pretty active in the Midwest doing protestant charismatic exorcisms so you mentioned earlier the charismatic movement and there's the catholic yeah. version also a protestant version and this fellow uh, does a lot of that and matthew baxter has written about going to some of these events and mm. being able to pinpoint the signs of possession because it looks like somebody is acting like they're the character of regan from the exorcist whereas yes. by contrast if you read up on the story that the exorcist was allegedly based on it's very different and if you read about cases of possession in anthropological literature every culture has different signs but when you go to see this guy people immediately begin acting as if they are from the movie the exorcist it's a fantastic point that was my like i said i being in a new experience but and seeing this but immediately recognizing the cues and my brain interpreting that yeah and you'd see it a lot again i I went to multiples of these and none of them were that severe but every time the priest would start that holy hour thing and then the voices would start and the movements would start it was creepy and horrifying and scary in that moment but um kind of knew what was going on at the same time those cues just uh, automatic because that's what we've been dictated to to know and um that's what we've been told to how to interpret those things um that movie and how much power and influence the the movie the exorcist has, has had yeah and how we interpret horror and the idea of uh, possession and again going back to that african tribe i'd mentioned because for them it was uh, in some ways like empowerment mm-hmm. like the exorcism was about power and being free and breaking out of these norms and I, I again seeing some of those people after they had experienced these events that I saw again that just that sense of relief and and almost I hate to use this word but almost healing in some ways mm-hmm. yeah just sort of the using the physical and the moment to get over these inner turmoils I guess well it gives you a sense of catharsis it lets you mm. you know come to some sort of emotional conclusion yeah. even if you don't necessarily deal with the underlying cause it allows you to do that and for some people that actually might be sufficient to allow them to heal from whatever it is that's got them for other people it may simply be scratching an itch and not getting at the underlying cause but i think it kind of depends on where you are with that yeah and what was interesting for me too like getting to know some of the priests that i was with they didn't really like they were more academics Mm -hmm. the the ones i were with i mean some of these guys had more than one doctorate i mean really intelligent really studious really academic people and so a lot of them they they didn't even really look at this or think about this for them it was it was more about the works so it was more about the brotherhood uh working together helping your communities and then you know the the philosophical discussions religious discussion it was those academics so this was very odd for a lot of them and the ones that i saw were mostly because they were at these big conventions that were usually uh run by the charismatics there's a handful of exceptions but normally yeah so that that sort of, of difference and trying to learn from that and, and and those guys and seeing how they interpreted it or how they viewed 
these exorcisms, which usually to them, they one or a couple of them in particular were, were kind of silly. Silly is not the right word, but um, that that was a little bit different for them. Like I said, they were more on the academic, uh, and then this was. But they also saw the power of it so much so that I can say that um, by the time that I left Oxnard, they had started to have a few charismatic events in, at the monastery. It was at in the little church there. They allowed some of the charismatic movements to do those things there. Well, you know, it also I think points to an interesting contrast between the way that a lot of clergy experience religion versus the way that a lot of average people do. Where that's a great point for clergy. This is a calling. This can be a pursuit that's, I mean, I don't think most of these people would devote their lives to it if there wasn't a strong emotional component, but a lot of them, especially in the Catholic church, I mean, the Catholic church is known for a strong intellectual tradition, you know, whereas the average person off the street doesn't necessarily need that. They need something that gives them a sense of belonging, a sense of fellowship, in some cases, a sense of emotional catharsis. And Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the charismatic and Pentecostal and so on movements serve those particular needs in a way that a more intellectual religious tradition has a hard time doing. I mean, it's not just Catholics. I mean, the Church of England, for example, has had to try to find ways to integrate elements of the charismatic movement in order to attract new members. Yeah. Same thing. I've heard similar things regarding the Presbyterians and even the Southern Baptist Convention in the U.S. has at times mm. been torn between a more intellectual bent or a more philosophical bent and one that's more experiential. So it's interesting that you were observing this split when you go to these events during this uh, period known as the Holy Hour. And, and you say it happened. Did it happen every time they had the Holy Hour? Not necessarily as big as the first time with the woman, but... You had these types of things occurring? Yeah, I, I saw it, I'm going to say about three or four times. And it was generally during that moment. It was almost like that was the cue that this is this is when these kind of things would go. And also, like I said, the lights would go down and suddenly it would just, like whatever stadium we were at, you would start to hear the noises pop up, the screams and the voices and the animal noises and all that would go. And then, you know, the shape of those stadiums, they kind of echo. So things, sounds would appear behind you, around you, a little disconcerting. But um, yes, it, that seemed to be the cue was that that holy hour. And there was other moments sometimes, but generally it was that. Like it was almost expected the ones that I saw when a person would have that, would be possessed, that those around them would kind of gather that sort of, you know, almost a metaphor of community, helping out this one person in their moment of need as the priest goes through. But yeah, generally it was with is with that that holy hour thing. Well, that's an interesting observation that they were helping out, you know, the people around them would be helping out this person in their moment of need. It's like the person who's having the experience, in addition to getting whatever release they're getting, they're also serving a purpose in that they're creating a stronger sense of fellowship amongst the people around them. And back then, like, you know, not much internet, not much, not what it is today. And the phones, mm-hmm. everything's different, right? Our communication is so much stronger now. There's the idea of story, right? Can you imagine, like, well, look at me. Here I am telling this story 30 years ago, for 30 years now. And being in those moments, and it's almost, I hate to say this, it's going to sound terrible, but almost like advertisement, right? It's, mm-hmm. you go to these, you experience these things, you spread those stories, and those stories gather. And a lot of the times they would draw people into these events. So there is something about that shared experience and those shared stories almost as, as being a way to draw in more people. As you know, we're all a little curious. We all want to see, a, you know, if you do believe there's a ghost or something, or whatever, to actually see something like that, to get that evidence. And so I think it draws people in. Um, yeah, I remember a uh, medieval studies professor I had in college, uh, Cynthia Policretti, I think it was her name. But she would talk about how, you know, at a point during the Renaissance when most people didn't speak Latin, but of course, mass is still in Latin. People would hang out outside the church, but they needed to run in to see the changing of the 
wafer and the wine into the body and blood of Christ because, <laughs> well, hey, that's something unusual. And it seems like in some ways this is a similar type of thing where it's a story about something that you'll see that you won't see anywhere else. In the religious life, right, especially the orders, and as I mentioned, a lot of them were, were academics. I mean, these are extremely intelligent people, again, multiple degrees and looking at things with a little more scientific bent or academic bent. But still, there was moments like... I'll tell the story briefly. So at the time I was in Oxnard, I, uh, for a moment, I was in charge of cleaning the church. So keeping it clean and everything ordered, that was my job for a while. So I was doing that. And this uh, a priest or whoever, or a monk or whatever would come in and check on me, make sure I was doing okay or if I needed help with anything. So every weekend, whatever, Saturday or whatever it was, I would be cleaning that place and they would come check on me or whatever. So I go in there one day um, and I'm, I'm cleaning up. And as I'm cleaning, I notice this family standing in front of one of the images, the statues of the Virgin Mary. And they are all in tears, crying, crying, crying. By themselves, there's no service. I just leave them alone. I just continue cleaning and letting them do their thing. So there's a husband, a wife, and there was two daughters, and they were all on their knees, and they were all screaming and crying, and they were all hugging on the dad. And they were there for some time, hour and a half, and they had offerings and flowers and things like that. And so eventually they left, and the priest came to check on me. And so I asked him about, you know, that the, the family. I, I had said something, there was a family here or something. And he goes, oh, yeah, he knew who they were. And the father had stage four cancer. And after prayers for intercession and stuff, it was all completely gone within the span of a couple of weeks. And so they attributed it to the intercession of the Virgin Mary or whatever. So they were there giving thanks. And But the reason why I bring this up is the way he, the priest said it, it, it was it was kind of weird. It was sort of that intersection of of like, um, you know, we're, we're cleaning, we're, we're talking, we're discussing about works and the order and philosophical things, you know, kind of more academic bent in the middle of that conversation. Then he would go to this sort of spiritual story and how to blend that. And as person, I wasn't very religious. I didn't really believe in any of that. And how do I, me, myself as a young kid, correlating these stories and, and what it all means. And just that the way that the, I don't know, the more intellectual and the way the more spiritual would kind of uh, blend and interweave sometimes, I guess, was the, the, the point that I was trying to bring up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I've known some people over the years, like a lot of the ethnographers I've known had absolutely no trouble interweaving intellectual aspects with what they of what they did with like supernatural aspects. Right. The archaeologists like me, we had a hard time doing that. Same with the uh, yeah. Same yeah. with the osteologists I worked with and so on. And not all the ethnographers. Some of them absolutely couldn't do that. But there were a fair number of ethnographers I met who had no trouble doing that. So, yeah, it's interesting when you meet somebody who does that. And, you know, for them, it's a seamless thing. Yeah, and absolutely. And for me, it was hard. And then a story like that, you know, I mean, even now, like, my brain goes to, okay, so coincidence, you know, scientists, but for them, for the priest that I was talking to at that time, it was more of a bigger picture for him. And, you know, they, they both somehow for him worked together and, and told a bigger story. I'm like, okay. But uh, yeah, it's still seeing that again as a young, as a pretty young adult and, and, and seeing this family and how being in this church and, and being a part of this, you know, had an effect for them. And yeah, I, I don't know what happened after that, but uh, I always thought it was kind of a, an interesting story. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there's a lot of information I'm going to say, you know, information and scare quotes about exorcism that is kind of, you know, publicly known again in scare quotes. And I, I don't know how much of it's nonsense and how much of it is true, but I, since I've got you here and you may know the answers to this, like one thing that a lot of people I know will talk about is that there are specialist priests who do exorcism 
and nobody else can. Is that correct in the Catholic Church? Sort of, yeah. So there are rites, like specific prayers and things. And so generally when an exorcism would happen, like uh, I had mentioned earlier, you, you do have to go through a series of approvals. There's tests that have to be done. And it's essentially the, the diocese and the bishop would have to sign off on this. So there are very, very clear um, uh, steps that do have to be done. So if a moment happened, like something severe that uh, a regular priest could get approved and do it. But there was so many, and I'm saying like the last 10, 15 years, there, there's, and again, I think this does tie in, into media, but I'll, I'll touch on that later. But um, there's been a huge hiring for exorcisms. So there's a program, I believe it was the Pope or the, the people from that level are creating more positions and bringing in priests to be trained in the Vatican to be more exorcists. I guess there's just this massive need for it. And which is really interesting to me, because what, what is that saying on a bigger picture and a bigger level? But there's tons of documentaries now coming out about it and how these priests are being trained uh, to do this. A lot of dioceses were assigning a specific priest in in their area to to do this. They would be the official exorcist. And I've read and talked to a few people, and there was some pushback because they felt like these priests felt like they were being put into the suspicious or doing something that they weren't really wanting to do. You know, if they wanted to focus on these academics or focus on a smaller community. Yeah, there was this absolute need for exorcists. So a lot of places are, from what I've heard, assigning, you know, an exorcist for the, the diocese that would help make these decisions and, and then do the work. But it's definitely a shift. Like I said, in the 70s, and you know, we had that strong, hard academic turn and now kind of moving this way. So yeah, what that role plays, you know, I'm not 100% sure, but there has been a, a huge training surge and, and, and movement to having more official exorcists. Okay. But it but that's not necessarily a set thing in the Catholic Church. It seems to be a more recent thing. Yes. Like there there used to be some, like a handful that would do it back in the day. There was only a few. And again, like in recent years, it is just like the amount of cases, I guess, that they look at and stuff has, has skyrocketed. I remember reading a few, uh, there was a few names, I can't remember at the top, off the top of my head, but they were kind of like specialists. There's one Italian priest, I can't remember his name right now, but he's the one that taught He's taught several, several American priests on, on how to do it and, and that kind of thing. But yeah. And you indicated that the priests might not choose to do this. They might essentially be voluntold that they're doing it. Yeah. I have to imagine that's going to be a weird thing. <laughs> right? Yeah, that'd be so strange. Like, what if you don't even believe in that stuff? And again, t- talking to pop culture, like... Let's talk about ghost shows, right? Uh, a lot of them times they'll do investigations in a house and or whatever, and they'll bring in a, a priest. But I, I think that has gotten into people's heads. And they'll, if they do experience something strange in their homes, they'll immediately go to their local church and ask. And I think some of these priests are actually being asked now to go to people's homes and talk to people. And in some ways, an odd situation. So yeah, very interesting how that pop culture again influences and, and, and changes those things and the, the nature of that job. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, really. (laughs) One of the things that you mentioned is that there may be cases where, like, in the moment, just standard local priest might just take care of something if they could. Is That seems, from your story, it seems to be that that's what happened with that woman at the uh, convention that one day. Is that correct? Yeah, it was just something that happened in the moment. I don't think it'd be planted. Mm -hmm. They didn't come or, you know, maybe on some level... Maybe she did it, just maybe she needed help. Maybe she was depressed. I'm not sure. And I know, I, I'm sure that priest hadn't had, I'm sorry, he had experienced similar things sure. during other conventions, but I don't think it was planned or, or anything mm-hmm. like that. Just sort of that in the moment. Uh, yeah, having to deal with that. And I remember back in, in, in high school, a friend of mine had called a priest over because he had seen something in his car and the, the priest had no idea. The guy thought it was a ghost in his in his car, which was, yeah. And so um, the priest talked to him and blessed the car or whatever, but you could tell it was kind of like, 
he wasn't sure what was going on. So he took initiative of the situation and just did it like a blessing, you know, hey, let's bless the car. Let's bless you. Be safe. You know, you're a new young driver. So he turned it from this sort of paranormal, scary into just what was a little more standard mm-hmm. job for him in that moment. Something that happened to a friend of mine years back, and I, I just think you'll enjoy this because it does tie in a bit with what you're describing. A friend of mine was working on an archaeological site, and they had a uh, Native American elder with them, which is c- pretty common in the U.S. It's not always the case, but very often when you're doing excavation, you'll have a uh, representative from whatever the local group is there, and their title is monitor. So they found something that this guy said he found unnerving. So he wanted to go through and do a ritual with everybody where he would burn some sage, blow the smoke onto them and sing a particular sacred song. And he got to my friend. He did that. And then once that was done, he just looked at my friend and said, I'm sorry, I can't get it off of you. It's too strong. And he just turned and walked away. Flash forward five years later. This friend is now married and his wife is convinced that we are surrounded by all manner of mystical things that could do us harm. And she hears the story and she insists that he go back and talk to the elder who had done this. So he goes to the elder and he says, hey, do you remember a few years ago this happened? And the elder just started laughing and said, yeah, that was pretty funny. Like, Wait, there's nothing there? It's like, no, it's just messing with you. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, my my experience yeah. is that working with a lot of these modders, some of them, I suspect, based on what I know, because I I knew this fellow, um, he probably did feel that it was necessary to do this. But my experience with most of these folks is that they also have pretty wicked senses of humor, and if they can mess with the white people, they totally will. <laughs> That's awesome. And it, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit, just, you know, like the role of, of these things and how it's changed. Like, for instance, like I remember tarot and, and Ouija boards having this influence and people want to do this to try and find something out about mm-hmm. themselves, the future. And, and sometimes we look for these words of wisdom from people that will somehow they're so wise or they're so into whatever it is that they'll have some sort of special knowledge about, you know, my grand existence and, you know, in the big scheme of things. And the power that little words like that can have. Yeah, that's that's an awesome story, though. It's funny because you're saying, you know, trying to find out my place in this grand existence. It's like the opposite of H.P. Lovecraft, you know, the idea that the horror of his stories <laughs> is all about the fact that not just you, but all of humanity is really pretty insignificant. Yes. Know? Yeah. So uh, you said you had some other things you wanted to talk about, and we certainly have time, so... Perfect. So I'll run this past this one past you. And it was during my time there. Um, I guess I won't preface it too much. I'll just kind of go into it. Okay. So um, in the monastery there, there was two big buildings, or I technically four, but there was two main residences, I guess. There was one for the older priests and one for the younger priests. And this building at the time, I guess, was fairly new. They had just built it, I think, a couple of years before, and they started bringing in students to try and have them eventually become monks. So when I got there, there was more rooms than than students. So the rooms were essentially kind of like a big rectangle. And there was a, two beds in the room. So one at the front of the tri- rectangle and then one at the back of the rectangle. And they were split by like a, a little stand-up closet bookshelf kind of thing. So essentially it was turning this one long rectangular room into two little rooms and had a bathroom. But because there were so few of us, we each had our own our own room. So I had technically I had two beds, you know, and I had all my stuff there and I, I think I used the front half and every once in a while I would switch, but I'd use this front half. And so, yeah, I, I had this one experience one day. I was, uh, or one night, it's going to sound kind of crazy, but I'll just, I'll stop trying to explain. I'll just tell it. So I'm asleep and suddenly something wakes me up and I cannot move. 
so I feel like something's pinning pinning me down. I can't really see anything because I remember right, I was sleeping on my stomach and my head was kind of sideways. But I hear what sounds like squeaking, a squeaking noise uh, coming. And again, I just, I'm, I'm sort of in between sleep and whatever, I, I'm being pinned down. I cannot move. I cannot see. And very slowly, I, I start to get dragged off the bed. And I remember falling on the floor and hitting the floor. And then whatever it is, whatever it was, starts to pull me now under the bed. And I remember freaking out. I wasn't very religious, but I got really religious suddenly. <laughs> I started praying and whatever this was, I could hear. And as I'm being pulled under the bed, the, the squeaking noise gets more and more intense. It's really strong. And I could start to see what looked like a mild green glow. And as I start the prayers, immediately the, the, the pressure off my chest goes away and the pressure off my legs, then the movement stops. The squeaking stops, and then suddenly the whole room changes, and I wake up, and i thinking, wow, that was a terrible nightmare. And so I sit on the bed and just kind of gathering my thoughts, and man, horrible, horrible nightmare. So I immediately go to sleep, and that's that. So it started to bother me for whatever reason, um, and I kept thinking it was so intense and it was so vivid. Like, what was that? So I went to the library. At the time, there was one nearby the monastery, and I looked up, and I found the old hag syndrome. I found night terrors and everything fit perfectly. And I was thinking, fantastic. Like, yes, this is natural. I get it. This is perfect. I'm not the only one to experience this. It was great. So it answered my questions and I was very, very happy. So fast forward about a week or two weeks later, I was at school with a, a fellow monk. I won't give his name away, but we were similar in age and we got along really well. And so uh, he was, something was bugging him that day. So we started to talk and he asked me not to say anything, but he said he was having trouble sleeping. And that over a period of two days or three days, he'd had the same dream where something was pinning him down in his bed. And he slept on his back and he said he would see this green mist, what he could see. And he's describing to me exactly, almost to a T, what I had experienced. The noise, this sort of squeaking noise, he heard the movement, it dragged him off uh, the bed. So to a T, and I explained to him what I'd experienced. So we were both like, what is this? And again, I still think that the the the, the night hags, the, that mm -hmm. fits it, but it was still intriguing that two of us would experience this at the same time. And then the last, there's a couple little twists to it. So a little bit of time after this, I went to clean my other bed. So I, I had, you know, the two beds, the one where I slept and then the empty one. So I go to change the sheets and I pull back the, the comforter on the bed and the comforter was fine. Just, you know, then pull it back. And on the sheet underneath was a circle, what looked like somebody had been jumping on the bed, but it wasn't on the top of the blanket just as I pulled it underneath and underneath on the sheets. And so I'm thinking, what is, I mean, maybe I sat on this, I, you know, it's just my butt print, which is the most logical explanation. But the fact that I had heard the squeaking and at that moment I pushed on the bed and, and I was able to recreate that same squeaking noise. So whatever it was I was hearing was the bed. So yeah, it, it kind of freaked me out because I, I don't, this has to be a scientific explanation. It has to be this, but the little things and the fact that someone else experienced it. And now that he and I were kind of aware, we kind of had our eyes open. And there was one guy, a Spanish speaker, he, there was a communal room. And uh, in the communal room, there was a TV and a couch and, and, and refrigerator, that kind of thing. And he was kind of in charge of waking everybody up. He'd play music in the mornings um, to wake us all up. And so that was his job. And I, for some reason, I couldn't sleep. And I, I woke up at like four in the morning and I walk in there and he's sleeping in there. And I told that other guy I was with and they were kind of close. So they talked about it over the next couple of days. And the guy wouldn't say much, but he said that he was having a lot of trouble sleeping. He felt like something was trying to keep him awake in his room. And so he was sleeping in the communal room during that time because whatever it was, he kept having similar dreams and similar things. And, and there was actually a fourth person who was saying that anytime he would try and close his eyes, he felt like he was getting pushed or things were moved in his room. And I don't know if I believed all that, but for him, what we ended up doing is a few of us went in there and saying a prayer for him in his room and that seemed to stop. So that one I always felt was psychological on some level, mm -hmm. but 
um, us coming together and going to his room and, and saying the prayers together seemed to calm, at least for him, whatever it was that was going on, not allowing him to sleep. But that was four people, more or less, that were experiencing something with this sort of sleep, sleep paralysis. And if it's coincidence, that that's fine. I have no problems with that. And again, all the symptoms were, you know, this night hag syndrome. But yeah, the little details are kind of fun. So I like to tell that one at a, at Halloween because I, I don't have a complete good explanation for it. Right. Still, I thought it was, uh, it's, it's a fun one to tell. So a question I've got for you is, yeah, I want to make sure I understand this correctly. You each experienced very similar sleep paralysis episodes the sound okay bed spring makes that sound okay i get that the green light you saw it the other fellow saw it did the third one see that as well that you know of so the one who was in the communal room he wouldn't say too much okay. uh, he wouldn't talk about it at all he pretty much essentially said that something was bothering him in his room to that effect he, this guy was very stoic and he, for his religious experience, he felt that this was a part of it, a sort of carrying the cross sort of uh, mentality. So he said very little. All he said that it was whatever it was was enough to make him sleep outside. And he said when it got bad, he would come out to the middle room. But he didn't tell me that he only told my friend because they were very close. And like I said, he, this guy was super stoic. And so to him, this was part of the process. But uh, he didn't say what he saw, only the fact that it was enough to make him sleep in, in the communal area. And none of the three of you or four of you, if you count the fellow who you think it was just largely psychological talked about it with each other prior to experiencing it that's the weird part right. is none of us had shared this the fourth guy the reason we noticed is because he was having trouble staying awake during the, the prayers and you got to realize this guy was if anybody was going to be a saint that i've ever met this guy was going to be a saint mm -hmm. and he loved the experiences he loved that life and to him the praying every morning and being a part of brotherhood was very important to him and so we could see it that something that he had bags under his eyes he was nodding off and this was something completely out of character for him so we approached him just out of kind of curiosity and see if we could help and i, I go into a time more detail just because it gets what he mm -hmm. said was so sort of outlandish so he was saying that anytime he would pray or try and sleep that he would feel wind in his room and that papers and things would flutter and something would shake him and so it was very, it's a pretty outlandish story. And so when we went that one time we passed by his room, there was movement in his room that we could hear. And when we opened the, or he opened the door for us, we, we talked about it later that we saw papers fluttering. Now, granted, it could be him walking towards the door and then the movement of the air, of course, but it was kind of, it, it's interesting. And then um, we talked to him for a bit. And like I said, that's when we did the prayers and stuff like that. And we gave him like a little vial of holy water and those things for him, at least mentally help solve that situation he said it was a huge help and he was able to sleep finally but um again i, I lean more towards mm -hmm. that was something psychological but still the story was was interesting I mean, sleep paralysis can occur in clusters but one of the reasons is that it seems like knowing about sleep paralysis actually increases the odds of you experiencing mm. weirdly so it's kind of one of those the more you know about how this is something that you really shouldn't worry about increases the odds of you having this really unpleasant experience. <laughs> no, like I, I yeah. thought of things too, like it was a new building. So I kept thinking, was there something they used in the paint or maybe to build it? Or maybe there was something in the ground that we just didn't see, maybe a mold. I have no clue. Yeah. But what it, again, like you mentioned, the part that I find most interesting is that neither of us had shared it and the fact that we were all having the similar dream our similar experiences was was it's just kind of intriguing uh, i have no answer but it, it was kind of kind of yeah it's different yeah that's that is fascinating but it also is one of those things where like i've never really experienced sleep paralysis but i know that being aware of it can increase the odds of you experiencing it so it's one of those well i hope i don't now <laughs> And I still experience it to this day, but it's not like that 
like it's usually just a really intense dream and I'll usually wake up at some point during the dream and I can't move. It happens to me kind of on a cycle almost. I'd say about every two months mm-hmm. I, I have an experience three months, but it's not like that was like a little more just the fact that there was multiple people having it. And that at least two of you, the green glow is kind of fascinating that at least two of you saw that because why would you see that? And one of the other parts, I know it sounds like really dramatic, but the, the idea of being pulled off the bed and yeah. being pulled under, one of the things I distinctly remember was when I finally got control and I went to to get up, my foot got stuck under the bed. And so I had to twist my foot down to pull it out. And so that's weird, a weird physical experience. Mm-hmm. Um and just sitting there thinking like, what the heck just happened? But again, I just chucked it all off. But I do distinctly remember having to to maneuver myself a bit to get out from under the bed, which is just weird. It's just strange. That's fascinating. And I assume I, I was probably just asleep and I maybe I rolled off the bed and I somehow got angled under it. And I, I assume that's what happened. But just remembering the fact that I did have to position myself properly to get out. And then the other guy experienced that too. He said he remember hitting his head when he came down off the bed He because he, he was on his back that his head hit the ground, uh, the back of his head. He said he remembered the bump and that kind of brought him a little bit more awareness. Wow. So yeah, weird, so, so weird story. It's a weird you one. You both fell off of the bed also. Yeah. Uh, so Again, that is just odd. I have no good explanation for it. I mean, I don't know what it is. I, I'm, I'm chalking it all off to sleep paralysis because right. otherwise I won't be able to sleep at night. Yeah, it was just it's just weird. And the fact that two of us would experience, that's what makes me think that on some level, maybe there was a, a mold or something in the building. Right. But it was new. It was, but maybe they unearthed something when they they built it. I, I have no clue. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I've had people ask me, "Do I believe in ghosts?" And my usual response is, "I don't find any compelling evidence that the dead are coming back to visit us." That said, people have experiences that they can't explain, and some of those experiences can be explained actually quite easily if you know the right things. But some of them, good luck explaining it. And yeah, a lot of what you're describing does sound like sleep paralysis, but some of it sounds a little different and it could very well be tied to sleep paralysis. It's just kind of odd. The way I am, like, even though I, I talk about living in a religious life, I, I'm not that religious person. I didn't really grow up that hard of Catholic, so I, I'm very much science-based. I'll joke, I, like for me, life I grew up very poor, so life was about reality. Mm-hmm. It was about having food on the table or not having food on the table. It was about, you know, um, I grew up in a very Hispanic neighborhood, Hispanic family, not to get into gangs. It's those realities, the gunshots, the the helicopters in the air. That's reality. That's real. It's um, That's what I believe. That's what's in front of me. And so trying to correlate that with ghost stories, I love a good ghost story. It's part of my culture who I love, mm-hmm. but... At the same time, I don't necessarily believe in them, but I love stories and I love hearing people's stories. But that's one that always kind of stumped me just a tiny bit. But again, like I remember going to the library and finding everything that I experienced there. And it was such a relief to see that. But then having that extra layer was, uh, yeah, just a nice, uh, interesting twist. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting to me that uh, there's a folklorist named Mark Hufford who specializes in stories that are centered on sleep paralysis. He has this concept of what he calls core experiences, which are weird things that happen to people that that person can't explain and that then go on to form the core of a set of supernatural beliefs and since his specialization is uh, sleep paralysis that's what he talks the most about it's interesting because you had sort of in yourself you've got kind of an opposite of that where you had this weird experience and your response is, okay, it looks the most like this there's some things I can't explain but maybe they're tied to that so rather than it forming the core of a belief in something supernatural, you've kind of chalked it up to a, yeah, I don't know. That's my own experience. I've had some weird experiences that, you know, I don't know what they were. 
Yeah. Maybe someday they'll turn out to be demons or aliens, but I don't know that any of those things exist. So yeah, I just don't know. Yeah. But for a lot of people that it becomes the bin in which they put everything they can't uh, understand. One of the things I'll, I may slightly chalk it up to, um, and just being open and honest, was that, again, I was new to religion at that time. But since I was in that life, I thought I would go full bore. And so I started to read other religious texts. I started to read about different meditation techniques and, and doing those things, because that's the life I was living at that time. So I kind of went in all in it. And I wonder if that had something to do with it, because that's sort of where my mind hmm you know, to a small degree was in that. But I'll add one other minor, minor detail that I, I almost forgot. So about two years after this, I was now moved into the monastery in Spain, a tiny little town called Monte Ludo, and there was uh, the, the monastery there where I did my novitiate year. So even more hard work, even more training, more reading. But I had another experience. And in this one, um, it was the same, similar, uh, except this time I felt like I was a little bit off the bed and it was a red light this time instead of the green, but almost identical. And this time I, I, I saw a face of what looked like, I think it was the Virgin Mary, which was really weird, but in an almost odd way. So I thought this is a nightmare. And so I remember kind of going back down on the bed. I couldn't move. And I, it felt like I was above the bed because I remember dropping and hearing the bed squeak a little bit. But I thought it's just a nightmare. It's, it's dreams, whatever. And then about two days later, that same guy that I'd mentioned that had seen the green, he came up to me and told me he had another another moment like this. And he was describing the red and he was describing the Virgin Mary. And I'm like, OK, Alex, let's, let's stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it could have been just a, a ton of things. Like I said to her. The way we geared ourselves at that moment, we were in that spiritual mm -hmm. life. You know, we were trying these meditative techniques. And, you know, who knows? It, it just dream cycles and reoccurring dreams. I have no clue. But I thought it was interesting that there was, a, again, a similar moment. But putting it out there, this, that second time, did not have the intensity of the first time. Mm -hmm. um, at least for me, this definitely felt a little bit more nightmare. But the fact that he also experienced something similar and did see the red also is, again, kind of intriguing without me saying it. I mean, he came to me to kind of bounce it off me and then telling him that I had also experienced something similar. So it happened on two different occasions in two very uh, faraway spots. Out of curiosity, are you still in touch with the fellow who had the similar experiences? I'm not. Uh, and it's it's sad because we were pretty close. Mm -hmm. uh, I had followed up with him once, I, like a year after I was out. And I think he left a year after me. The last I'd heard, he was in, I believe, Las Vegas. And he was married now. But yeah, it's been some time. I always want to follow up with him because he was just a really great mm -hmm. guy. And again, we were, I think, only a couple months apart. So we kind of uh, bonded. I, I would imagine that there's a fairly high dropout rate amongst people who are going to become monks just because it does seem like a life that Probably isn't for everybody. Yeah, it was for us. It's a pretty high turnover. I mean, in the four years I was there, I'll throw a number out. I would say I saw like 100 different people come in at the different levels total. And from what I know, I think three of them made it out of all those people. So two became priests and one became a monk, a brother. So yeah, out of the 100 I saw or so, only the three that I know made it. Wow, that's even lower than I would have expected. I, I guess there's probably not a whole lot of a stigma with dropping out of a program like that if the rate is so high. So I, on that note, like one of the things they had talked about, I remembered was kind of moving to where there was, how can I say this, where there was more interest, I guess. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of missionary work in, in where the order I was in. And at that time, they had just moved to LA to Oxnard, but there was, wasn't too, too much. I mean, there was some interest, but not a lot. And they were talking they were about going to the Philippines and to Africa to do missionary work because there was a lot more interest and they're hoping that they could get a, like a lot more new recruits in those areas. So I was like, okay. So I, I think it would change like, so where, where the spirituality is, where that missionary work in 
terms of the church, how they felt what it was needed, and then how could they get recruits from those new areas? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much for uh, being willing to take some time and uh, speak with me and my audience. Hey, ton of fun. I loved uh, the show and what you're doing with it. My daughter and I listened to it together, so it's just fantastic. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and I just love, you know, the interesting, fun topics, but to be able to talk about it and, you know, experiences and then dice it up is, is just fantastic for me. So, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was fantastic. Thank you. If you have a weird tale, have had a strange experience of your own, or know of a bit of local lore that should get a wider audience, please feel free to contact me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. That's G-H-O-S-T-H-R-O-P-O-L-O-G-Y at gmail. You can find more at kmmamedia.com. Click on the Ghostthropology link and you can find episodes, transcripts, sources, and a link to support us through Patreon. Spooky!